Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of Deep Dive, I'm joined by Theo Deutinger. He's an architect, writer, and curator. He's the founder and director of The Department, a practice that combines architecture with research, visualization, and conceptual thinking at all scales. The broad scope of his work ranges from global planning, urban master plans and architecture to graphic and journalistic work. His 2018 Handbook of Tyranny has won numerous awards, including the 2018 FILAF Architecture Book Award, and his work has been part of international presentations at the 14th Venice Architecture Biennial and the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam and the Storefront for Art and Architecture in New York. He has taught project studios at the Birlach Institute, TU Deft, and Harvard Graduate School of Design. He's currently teaching at the TU Vienna, and apparently we're also in two completely different climates, as I am in Miami recording this, and he is looking out at snow-capped mountains. Either way, we're getting this done, and I want to welcome Theo to the deep dive. How are you, sir? Thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm very fine. Thank you. It's interesting, you know, as I was telling you as we were, as we were chatting a little bit before I hit record that I, I loved getting your book. I've had the book for a little while and, and it's just this really beautiful collection of some really awful ideas. Um, if I, I think that's a, a, a decent way of putting, um, putting it. And so the handbook of tyranny is, is clearly not a light bedtime read. So I'm curious what prompted you to make such a a graphic and illustrative history of tyranny. Yeah, I mean, we, as, as you said, I'm educated as an architect and I'm very much interested in, in the spatial dynamics at a, at a larger scale. So I would say I'm always interested in architecture that is, or the borders of architecture, the architecture that is beyond the house, beyond the buildings, um, architecture which appears in our everyday life without us thinking about. And, and at a certain moment, I realized that uh, the, the, the whole book started actually with, with the chapter Walls and Fences, and I realized that there are walls uh, without roofs and, and walls which surround the entire countries. And um, so we my team uh, and, and I, as I work with the team, we were looking at the um, diversity of typologies of these walls, uh, walls and fences. It's not only walls, but it's also mostly also fences, which are dividing nation states. And we tried, as we very often do in our research, to collect 100% or at least to attempt to, to, to have the attempt or the, the, the strive for 100%. So as almost a retroactive act, we collected images and informations of all walls and fences that are erected between nation states around the world and did then retroactively draw in line drawings as architects would draw them for um, construction plan. Um, and line them up uh, in the same scale next to each other, just as an, somehow as an exercise for us. At that time, we also had a, an agreement with an architecture magazine that we can publish. In every issue, we got a, a spread, a double page, and there we published our first results. Um, and that was somehow the beginning of the Handbook of Tyranny. And, you know, the... You, you mentioned in there that you're interested in in space and architecture's interesting because it exists in space because it is made up of material um, materials, but it also creates space. 
in the sense that it creates enclosures, it creates boundaries. You you talk about this idea of of fences and gates as an example. What what really struck me is how much of the materials, not the physical materials, but the the sections that you're talking that you're talking to are quite dark in a way, but yet they are almost invisible to those of us as we move through our world. And you know, I, I don't like I don't personally think that much about walls and fences. They be they're physical but also very abstract in a way, in the way we, we think about them. Yeah, it's also because most of us live far away from these structures. So these walls and fences appear mostly at the periphery of countries, which are very often yeah, not so um, inhabited. Um, and yeah, that's the that's the almost the sign of our times, that, that the things which... Um, that, that we live in a quite abstract world. So pr- pr- uh, products are, are produced at the, uh, at the other side of the globe, but the walls which somehow should, let's say, um, protect us are hundreds of thousands of kilometers away uh, of where we are living. That's why we are quite living quite remote from these structures. And even if we could or would come close to some of the structures, we are not even allowed to really go there uh, sometimes because there are uh, stones between the structure itself and the people, uh, maintenance roads, um, and so on. And then there's the next thing that we, in the news, mostly get images and, and, and yeah, already processed um, information about the structures. We never get to see the construction drawings, um, this, which makes it much more real. Uh, if you make a picture from a, a wall, 90% is the blue sky. Um, you know, it's it, uh, photography makes it almost even, yeah, sometimes beautiful because it's in a beautiful landscape. Most of these walls are in a quite, yeah, beautiful, nice landscape. And I think our depiction of the walls as a technical drawings reduces these structures to what they are. They are just um, imagined or designed by uh, colleagues of mine, by architects, engineers, who got their assignment from, um, yeah, somebody in the state and said, yeah, you know, they, they get a phone call, you know, we need a, a wall between uh, US and Mexico, can you not design something? And then you, yeah, as an architect, engineer, you think about, yeah, how can we separate the nation states? That's what I think is so this banal thing um, that we are at our drawing tables, at our computers, doing just kind of executing an order, uh, which then results in in a tragic and and, and inhumane um, structure. And and, and it's that blurring of the line that really struck me because walls are political ideas as well. Right, they are creating boundaries between um, nation states, as you stated. Um, but at the at the core level of that, we are talking about the movement of human beings. Right, we're also talking about material. You know, going back and forth between one place to another, trucks and things like that, shipping. But our our most at least my most cutting images of, of of walls and fences from a nation state's perspective are those of people. And there is incredible power and also violence in the creating of the of that spatial dynamic um between between borders. Um but yet these ideas live largely in our in our political space as well, right? You, you mentioned the wall of the US and Mexico. And, you know, when we have that madman running the country, that particular madman running the country, right? Um, that was a, a, a chant at his blood rallies, right? <laughs> build that wall, build that wall, right? So I'm, I'm curious about the line between the citizen 
and the state. And you mentioned this a little bit in the book that when we become part of the state, we cede some of our of our power to build things like walls. And then they take on this political idea bigger than the wall itself. You know, how do you how do you think about that that sort of division, that that political and the spatial division and in as encapsulated in walls? Yeah. That's good. I mean, there, there is, um, I mean, I like this image of, this, I think in, in one hand, the, the nation state is very beautiful, oh, beautiful. It's an interesting um, design or concept, uh, which I think, for example, where I think the, the, the Americans as such are not fully committed as the Europeans to the nation state as uh, caring for, for each and everything. Because, for example, the Europeans um, are very happy with giving up their um, right to self-defense. In Europe, it's very strange to carry a weapon uh, because we gave this power to the police and to uh, the, the army, where we think of this institution is protecting us. That was it's a, a modern thinking. Pre-modern would be... I carry my own gun because I have to uh, defend myself. The nation, nation state collects uh, a group of people and say, you give us your guns, guns, we use these guns against their enemies, and you can freely within these borders uh, walk and, and, and uh, yeah, move around, and these institutions will protect you. In America, this is not really pulled through. In America, some don't trust the nation, nation state completely in that, and have the, the right to uh, or demand the right to to have their own gun, similar in the in the social welfare and so on. But the wealth the nation state in itself is a is a container of like-minded people who give up some rights they have to the bigger institutions. And that includes also to protecting the borders around this container, let's say. And that's how I see these political steps or the, the, the becoming of the nation state is also becoming of clear borders between uh, here and there. It also is supported by technology, by surveying or, or surveilling, surveilling technology that you can draw a line. Now with GPS, we can, let's say, uh, define by the millimeter or by the inch where the U.S. ends and where Mexico starts. Which is also quite new. It was, say, 200 years ago, it was kind of a field or a stretch of land. Now it's a clear, sharp line which divides us from them or us from others. That's one thing. And the other thing is that the nation state, state and we as a, as a community living in this nation state, invest in a structure like a fence, which is a not such a big investment, but a wall, it's quite an investment uh, of money, um, has, must have a certain reason. I mean, if you, if you think about two neighbors living next to each other, the ideal uh, scenario would be that they don't have a fence. They don't need a fence. As soon as a neighbor starts to build a fence, there's something wrong in the, I would say, in the communication with the neighbor, or there's a big difference between the two of them. So the sign of wall building is actually a sign that there's a, a huge disparity, uh, this difference between these uh, two entities. Um, the, the higher the investment, let's say, if it go, goes then, mostly it starts with, a, if, it's, if it's a long stretch of border, it starts with a mud, a, mud, uh, a hill or so, or, or a ditch, uh, then the next phase is you you erect a fence, and then when it when the the differences between the new two nation states get even severe more severe, out of this fence uh, becomes a wall, and the wall is then the biggest investment you can have uh, of um, a border security, huge investment in money, but also a sign of uh, of bad neighborhood, I would say, of neglect from one side to the other. So wall building is more, 
I would say that um, the difficulty is that it's it's a sign of hostility, of big differences, of uh, bad communication, and that's really I mean what what now I mean the conflict. We should not maybe uh, open the discussion to Israel uh, and Palestine, but the the big wall which has been the big investment between the Gaza Strip and Israel. Um, was already long, long time ago a sign of, of, of not a good communication between two uh, neighbors. And there's, there's so much in there because it, it ultimately comes down largely to this notion of fear, right? Like there's a, there's a fear of some other person or entity and the wall is, is designed to keep your side of it safe right and moving through the world with the lens of fear builds and creates certain architectures all of its own right like all of your imagination now is poured into creating this this thing as you highlighted and and in the book and others highlight as as much as walls are a geography that is, like you said, quite severe. Israel and Palestine is a perfect example. United States and Mexico, mythological examples like the wall in Game of Thrones, right? They also, what strikes me is that one, with all, even with all the technology, they are still negotiated spaces, right? We are, we are still, we can get it down to the millimeter, but those millimeters change all the time, right? Because someone will say, I don't respect that millimeter, right? And I'm building on the other side and now the wall has changed, right? Even though there's people there. And so that that's what's tricky to me, right? Is the porous nature of walls, the fear element of walls, and then the efficacy of walls. Like, do they work? For all of human imagination, we've been pouring into making them of different materials, different heights. We're going to thicken them, more security, the drones, night cameras, all this shit. And they don't seem to actually do the job that they're supposed to do. Like, how do, how do we reconcile that in a society that should be moving forward? Yeah, that's that's a big question. I mean, in in the case this of is, this of, is a big question show. Yeah, <laughs> I know, and it's a. I mean, in the case of of uh, Palestine or the Gaza Strip and Israel, uh, this wall just was completed. It's apparently at at at, at parts forty meter deep. The the wall actually between Gaza Strip and Israel is is more like a, a underground wall. It was. Uh, built against the Hamas standals entering Israel. So it was more an underground structure, underground wall. On top, it was just crowned by a fence, which was six to eight meter high. But it was the most the high tech, it was a high tech construction. It was the best of wall building you could have on the globe. And it still did not work. It still did not. Um, it was overrun at the end quite easily uh, as it looks like so it did not it did not do its job in fact what i read if uh, in, in fact it gave a false security people were pulled away from the wall or uh, soldiers uh, because they said oh there's anyway the wall so we don't need so many soldiers along the uh, the border now between gaza and um, israel so in a way, the wall is a replacement for, for people. If you would not have a wall at all, then we would have a chain of soldiers standing along, along the, uh, the borderline. And every wall is actually a replacement for, for, for border patrols. But I think it's, it's, it starts at the very, very beginning. What do we do with our borders? So. Let's say the U.S. and Canada, they understand each other quite well, have good, uh, good relationship with each other. The border is yeah, invisible as such, almost. Uh, there is some control, but okay. And if we would have a national and international agreements to a certain extent, that's the, the first step to, to, um, to do that. 
I think that the wall is, as I said, a sign of that there's something wrong between the two countries. I mean, that's that's the same. There are, there are many examples of because if if the differences in the the argument in in in, econ in economy in welfare in political stance are already very very different between two countries, this leads to confrontation and. Uh, later on to wall building. There are examples like the, the little green man. I don't know if you know the story about the little green man. <laughs> you know, they know. I mean, yeah, I, I'm just flip, uh, switching now to the border between Ukraine uh, and Russia. Russia invaded Ukraine 2014 uh, and occupied parts of eastern Ukraine and, and the Crimea island with the help of little green men. The border between Ukraine and Russia was not fenced at that time and not, not really protected. And um, little green men, I mean, they were not so little, but they were green. They were Russian soldiers without any insignia, without any um, signs of being army personnel. Was just green. They were just green. They had their green dresses, green uniforms, without any insignia that they are soldiers. So they just um, went with trucks and, and by foot from Russia to Ukraine. And then being in Ukraine and on the Crimea island, they took their guns and occupied the territory. So it was kind of a sneaky occupation of territory, which resulted in a huge uh, fence building between European countries and Russia. So Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, uh, as, a, as, as a reaction to that, they all started to build fences to uh, the border of Russia because everybody was afraid of little green men. Because what if they enter Poland? They could do exactly the same. So that's kind of where you think, yeah, I understand the reaction. You know, there, is, there was a, a president, there was a, a um, yeah, a, a clear event, uh, which where the neighbor Russia abused actually the openness of the border to invade uh, a neighbor country, and then to say, yeah, don't build build a fence to say to these neighboring countries is kind of yeah. I, I understand them that they built these fences because you don't want to have little green men in your country. No, he <laughs> did. You know, you don't want them. Uh. <laughs> you, you, you definitely don't. But yeah. but I, I think it circles back to that idea that if you're a lunatic like Putin, right? Like, you know, this this gangster that's running a, a country, right? A wall ain't stopping him from doing what he wants to do, right? So if he... You could build the wall if you want. I'm not. I'm not advocating one way or another. I'm. I'm just trying to figure out: is that your most effective way forward when those who have designs on your space are not going to be deterred by the wall, right? They're because they're gonna they're gonna drop their bombs over your wall, right? They're gonna. <laughs> You know, the fame, the fame, and I was, I loved when it came up in the book, you know, the famous Maginot line, right? Like this line that I've been fascinated by since I was a kid, you know, I was reading about, you know, the lead up to World War II and they're like, oh, we built the most intricate bunkers and tank deterrents. And Germany was like, I'm just going to go around this shit, right? Like, <laughs> you know, like all your guns are, are pointed and they're stationary, right? Like you built these big bunker things pointed just in one direction. So when I'm on the other side, you can't even turn them shits around, right? It's a huge failure. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's what the point is almost with the little green man. That's the maximum you can do, you know, the little green man. Because uh, what did Ukraine do after 2014? They built kilo 100 kilometers of stretches of fences to the border of Russia. Yeah, it didn't help at all. I mean, these fences were overrun. But there was millions of euros invested with the help of the European Union. Didn't help at all. So it does not help for it. It helps. It maybe it gives you some time, you know, 
or but it's not it doesn't help at all eventually yeah, but you know not that much time no right like it's a few minutes maybe <laughs> yeah it's a few minutes yeah. right and that's what's so striking right like there's so much poured into these structures you know literally and figuratively and i'm on i'm on i'm an open border guy right <laughs> only because and it's you know people hear that and like oh my god you want chaos and i'm like this is what we, we already got chaos Right. The fact that we've created this illusion of a border creates chaos. Right. And we've, we've spent a lot of time on big physical structures, but I, I thought, which was also quite eloquently and deftly done in the book, you talked about, you do talk about more about these borders and, and passports, right? Like passports change how we move as a person. And, and there's often a fence and a security checkpoint, all that kind of stuff. But the physical passport itself, this little book is, is like a geography in and of itself, right? Because you're carrying, it's almost like you're carrying your country with you in a yeah, way. Yeah, it's exactly that. That's what I find so fascinating about a passport. It uh, makes you a member of a certain group. And you know, it makes you officially a member of this container. You are belonging to and that's your container and if you want to go from one container to the other you need this book and you have to show it on the border and then you go into the other one and then you are officially also a visitor you don't belong to the others you are from the other container and so we somehow with the invention of the passport or, or, or introduction of the passport we officially dedicated every person on the planet to a territory. So it's officially linking uh, two things, land and people. And with that, we somehow created a very, in the beginning, people didn't think about it, but a very strange system, which is a construction. It's not, it's, it is a design. So we designed and designated people to territory. That's what I've, find so fascinating, but also in a way very cruel because we lost a lot of freedom and uh, the openness. So there, there is no open open structure where I cannot choose. Uh, it's, it's, I'm born into, I'm born into uh, a country. So you, I'm already born in a system which was prepared for that. So I'm, I'm Austrian. I was born into the Austrian uh, legal system without signing anything. Uh, I didn't sign a contract. Or so, but I was just, that was designed for me and designated for me before I even started to live. And it's all then at the end result in a, in a book, a little book, which at that time uh, it was somehow internationally um, designed or how does it, given shape in 1920, so a little bit more than 100 years ago. It was even discussed what it would be necessary for such a passport. The British were very against to have a, a photography in the passport because they said it's against your, um, your individual rights and so. And yeah, uh, but now, a hundred years later, it, decide, it decides between death and life. It, it, it has become such an important document which nobody would have imagined. What I'm also fascinated is by the by the how, how young all the systems are, how young the passport is, um, and that we are still, I think, not used to live in this world of nation state of passports, and of and we never question these inventions seriously because they're still so young and and the effects are very new to us. And we have no clue how to deal with. It. We have no clue how to deal with people who want to move through the world freely how to stop them, and we also question why should we stop them? I mean, the arguments, I've, I, would have, I, I don't have an, an argument why people should not walk from Africa to Europe. Why not? I mean, I, yeah, just because, okay, we would say, yeah, that's the nation states, that's the booklet, and I think, come on, are you serious? Because of this little book, I'm not allowed to walk. Yeah. And there's, but there's, again, that fear comes in, man. Like, you know, when I, when I, when I see the, when I hear the language 
and I see the video of the scary people, you know, there, there's always, you know, it always looks a certain way. It's always that night vision video. It's like when you're watching a safari, right? And I think all of this is by design, right? Because it, it dehumanizes the people, right? Because this is in the darkness, they're scurrying around, they have that, the light eyes, you know, so they don't, they look otherworldly. And when you're the person that's using that kind of stuff to make people afraid, it's compelling, right? And the, like you said, the passport is life or death, right? Because if you have a certain passport, you pretty much have freedom of movement, right? Like I have an American passport. There ain't too many places stopping you with an American passport. Yeah. And and they're also not asking you a lot of questions, right? Because the assumption when I move in the world is like, he's not staying. Yeah. Right? Like um, Americans are not perceived really as like displaced people they're they're not perceived as as refugees right even though i hate that word refugee but other people the the assumption is like so how long you really gonna be here i know this says a week but you know am i gonna have to come looking for you right like so it 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 means so much in in these spaces and i and i and i love the fact that you brought up cruelty right because it, it seems to me, and I, I want to get your thought on this, like as I flip through the pages, so much of this is almost all of it <laughs> feels cruel to the point where I'm like, is that, you know, they say in American politics with conservatives, the cruelty is the point, right? Like if you're, if you're confused as to why conservatives are doing something and you're like, oh my God, why would anybody do this? It's so cruel. It's like, yeah, well, that's, that's the point. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I wonder, as I was reading this, is is so much of is the cruelty just built into it so that it's the it ultimately is the point. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, the point is to control, to create um, a certain order in the spaces we create. And this order is comes with, with cruelty. So inventing a passport, which was invented by, uh, let's say, the Europeans and the and Americans dominating the world um, 100 years ago, it was their invention. And if you invent this passport, uh, from our point of view, you think, oh, fantastic, it's great, because it allows us to recognize each other at the border. But And we still think it's a fantastic idea. But if you have a passport, and we don't, because we don't think about people who have an ask passport, let's say from Afghanistan, where Afghan people are just allowed to travel to 23 countries without applying for a visa, while I'm as a European I'm, or Austrian, I'm allowed to travel to 170 countries uh, with my passport. We don't, of again, we are very far from the cruelty. I see my passport as something which is the ticket to the world. While um, if I have an Afghan passport, if I would be Afghan, I would also throw it away probably in, in, in some dumpster because what it's worth, uh, if you only are allowed to, uh, to visit 23 countries and none of these are your neighboring countries, so you don't even can leave your country without an airplane. So it's a worthless document. It's actually a document for, of a prisoner in a way. So, and I think we really have to think about what we invent. So with the invention of the passport, we did not think it completely through. Or it developed in a, in a way which now is, as I said, a, a, a cruel a cruel thing to have if you are on, let's say, on the side of an Afghan uh, person. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, you know, there's, a, there's another piece that I wanted to, to, to get to in this, which is this this notion of of movement and we talked about it going from place to place I, I mentioned that you know i don't like the word refugee but you know i i'm more displaced person right um kind of kind of guy but we've been talking about the geographies of movement but then 
you also cited refugee camps and the the architecture that is now built and designed around housing displaced people within borders themselves, right? So you have movement, now you have other places that, that form and are created. And it, it made me think about, f- first of all, the vastness of these spaces, right? Which is, you know, I, I always try to like, really drown my, my, you know, drill down into my metaphors, right? Like, I think a lot of people are probably like me, right? Like you see these things either on the news, right? Or you see them in a movie that's depicting something you've seen in the news, right? So it's filled with tents. There's a dusty road. You might see like Jeeps, you know, there's people huddled together. There's a Red Cross tent, right? Where like the movie dialogue would happen as, you know, some character zooms in or zooms out, right? But you kind of have have drilled down more intricately how a refugee camp actually works. And I want to juxtapose that idea for a moment with what we have here in the United States. We call them sanctuary cities, right? Mm -hmm. That as people move from one place to another, a city like New York until our terrible mayor would be considered like a sanctuary city. It's a city where we invite others to come and it has its own geography. So I'm, I'm curious about those two seemingly opposing realities while also they're absorbing people in a way, the refugee camp and the sanctuary city. Like how does, how does that idea kind of put together in your mind? Yeah. I mean, I would say the two concepts are quite, quite different. The refugee camp as such is, should be a safe space for people who, who have to run sometimes for their life. And mostly refugee camps are quite close to the origin of destination so that people, the idea that people can return to where they came from and the refugee camp is a temporary place where people can feel safe uh, for the time of the conflict. That's the ideal scenario. I think in sanctuary cities, people are not thinking of, or it's, it's not so much implied that people would return to their, where they come from, and people are quite remote already or far away uh, from uh, the conflict zone. What is with refugee camps? Very interesting that the, the, the countries, uh, like in Jordan, there's a huge uh, refugee camp for Syrian uh, refugees, uh, that these countries like Jordan, they don't want to have a Syrian city on their, on their, um, on their, on their property. So somehow in the contract, it's written that these structures which house the refugees should be not too solid. Everybody thinks, why are they still sleeping in tents? Why are they not going to houses? That's in the contract. Because the countries are afraid that people would build houses. As soon as they have houses, they would never leave again. And then suddenly in Jordan is a Syrian city with hundreds of thousands of Syrians. And it's somehow, again, what you said, the fear. There's fear that there would be a Syrian minority in Jordan and a long-term fear of a problem or people you have to, would have to deal with. Because if people are staying, people are born there in the city, they uh, get attached to the city and they say, yeah, that's the city where I grew up because some conflicts last the same years. And that's the whole weird dynamic we are living in, that there are architects thinking about better um, housing for refugee camps, but that's useless if in the contract it's written the housing should be bad. Uh, the housing should be replaced. There are contracts where the housing should be replaced every five years to make sure that these people don't get used to the structure they are living in. So the um, uncertainty of the structure of the real house, the uncertainty of the structure, is then reference to the uncertainty of staying there. So refugees in these refugee camps are mostly made sure that this is temporarily a temporary stay in many, many ways. So in the structure itself, in their documentation, their 
in, in everything, everybody tries them to make them understand you are not, this is temporary for you, you have to go back where you are, uh, are from. And that's another level of cruelty and another, but yeah, that's, I'm, I'm, the thing is, I'm overwhelmed by, by the, the, the results of my research sometimes, you know, because I analyze it, I, we illustrate it, we show it, I talk about it, but I have no, no power to change these structures. I have no power to change um, the walls and fences, the, the passports, the refugee camps. The only thing I can do is to communicate it through the means we, we have, the drawings, the writing, and now talking to you, and to also inform people about uh, what is going on and to share with others my sometimes disgust, but, but at least my my knowledge. Yeah. 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 But it's but it's it's very important, right? Because the illustrations and the graphic way in which you lay them out, they make it more tangible and real when, like we discussed throughout the show, we've kind of weaved it in that a lot of times we are far away from the violence, right? Um, we are far away from the cruelty, but it's still done in our name in a way, right? Like I, I might not, I'm, I'm not for the wall, the wall, right? <laughs> this, this, this larger than life, almost cartoon like idea, right? Yeah. But the wall is built in my name because I'm a citizen of the nation state, right? Yeah. So I didn't vote for Trump, right? Like he's a despot, right? But I voted for Biden and the wall continues to be built. Yeah. Right? No, but the, like, wall, the wall was started in the 90s by, uh, or, or earlier. I mean, the first uh, signs of, of the fence between Mexico and the US is, is uh, I think from 1890 or so, or 1880s. It was a little barbed wire uh, fence and so and But exactly what you say, I think that's very, I very much agree, because also the defenses and walls which are built around the EU are built in my name. They're financed by the European Union. I'm a member of the European Union uh, and the citizens of it. And it's in my name, so I cannot, um, I'm part of it in a way. And, and I'm also against the walls, but I know it's built in my name and the system is, is there. And I think at least to criticize it or highlight it from within, from it's done in my name, but I don't agree with it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it's stark when you see it, when you see it, right? So I wanna I wanna get to another another section because I'm keeping an eye on it on the time for us. Um because we do have two segments of the sh of the show to get to. And and this was pretty chilling which is talking about the the death penalty. So prisons and, and the death penalty and, and, and in the book, you kind of walk through the process and the machination of of this person, Tukey Williams, who was who was gonna get the death penalty through lethal injection. Again, it was one of these things where as you read the account, there's so much architecture you know, and I'm using the word in terms of like, there's buildings and processes and steps and movements and barriers. And there's a table of a certain height and size and a light that looks like this. And the people in the gallery watching this are removed and there's audio and speakers, right? So I'm kind of painting a picture because I think it's best when people read it themselves in the book, right? But there's all of this stuff that's almost designed, at least I read it this way, like it's designed to make me forget that I'm killing a person, right? So it's not the firing squad, it's not the hangman's noose, which has its own architecture, right? It's literally the state is murdering this person. Yeah. Right, and that, that was a hard thing to, to yeah. process. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's um, in, in almost in the, in the method of, of killing, of death penalty, you can read uh, the country, the idea of the country, how to deal with people. 
And if, if, if it's the U.S. Uh, death penalty, it's a very technological, organized way of execute. It's also called execution. So it's you execute something, you execute an order. There is a, a first. There is a law case, and then you in court, and then you get the order, and then the the person who is executing the death penalty, uh, death penalty is executing an order, and this. Uh, whole process, as you said, is very much engineered. It's, it's, it's a part of, of physical and and legal architecture. Um, yeah, which is almost uh, another section. What we have is the, the slaughterhouse, where where which is very similar in its in in its processing. So how we how we we kill animals or we kill people is very much according to. Uh, a sequence which is plotted out. We even have laws probably how to do that. And uh, the result at the end is the same. There's a dead person, there's a dead animal. But we have the feeling we, we have done it in the most, I don't know, clean way almost. But that makes it even more cruel because it's without any empathy. It's without any, um, I mean, you can also die in dignity or you should die in dignity. Um, I don't know if you if you get hanged if that is more dignity than you get an injection, but the injection is even because it's so remote and it's so yeah technocratic, it, it makes it uh, inhumane in a way. Yeah. yeah, and that's and that's what's hard, right? Like, I don't I don't think there's a good way to go. Yeah. Right, like I'm no. not, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give the, you know, as, as again, I already mentioned Game of Thrones once, but you know, Tyrion Lannister used to give the best line when people are like, "How do you want to die?" He's like, 80 years old in my bed," and then there's other like <laughs> things going on that he said in his statement, right? So I think, yeah, that's probably the best way to go, right? Like yeah. in your sleep, cuddled up in a blanket, right? But absent that, all of these choices by the state yeah. are awful. Yeah. Right. But I, I mean, stoning, as it is explained in the book or, or described, is also quite, has also quite a, a procedure. I think all these, these death penalty uh, procedures have quite the, the, their laws, like with the stoning, men and women are buried in a different height. The stones should be not too big to kill not a person with the first stone, should be not too small, so to make sure that people are really killed. So there's a much, I mean, there's a, a set of rules who are extremely cruel, but there is a set of rules how to do it. And um, it makes it equally cruel almost as our technocratic uh, approach. Yeah, it's, 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 it's quite awful, right? But I think if, if people feel like I'm as far removed from the reality of this, as possible, then it becomes easier, I guess, to do yeah. the thing, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, and, this, sorry, and, the, with the stoning and with the firing squad, it's done as a, a communal effort. With the stoning, there's the community killing one person, and nobody knows who killed him. Nobody knows who was the final stone who killed this person. Hundred people maybe stone, uh, throwing stones. One might have been at the end the killer, but it is dispersed around the community. It's the same with firing squad. Nobody knows which bullet it was who killed this person. So to disguise the person who was eventually killing this person. Uh, we do this disguise with a technocratic approach. We do it because always with, with death penalty, it's about to not that nobody can blame at the end one single person. I think in the medieval times, the henchman was a very uh, special person. In a way, I don't know the, the legal system, but to um, disperse, how do you call that, uh, responsibility. Because at the end, it could have, two years later, it could turn out that the person was innocent. That's always the, the possibility. And if then one would be are responsible for killing an innocent person. So I think this dispersion, dispersal of, of responsibility is just the way out. What if this person is really innocent? We all did wrong. 
and not one degree. Yeah. It's it's funny. I did not plan all these Game of Thrones references, I promise. But, you know, it's, it reminds me of, like, again, Ned Stark, right? He says, like, you know, the man who passes the sentence has to swing the sword, right? That's what he always told all that goes through the lineage of the show at different at different times. None of these Game of Thrones references were planned, but for some reason they keep coming up into my head, you know. But it's 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 a it's a really stunning, stunning way to to think about, you know, passing on responsibility. And we've and we've seen this before with um you know American history is filled with the death penalty, the death by community, right? The lynch mob, right? People would would drag, you know, yes, an innocent black person, largely a male, likely a male, but not exclusively male, even though males are the ones we show most most often, and take them out into the woods and dispense community justice, right? Or not the woods, right? There's famous lynching picnics, right? People going out to the town square to see things like this, men, women, and children, and it becomes an event, right? So this I'm very sensitive to this notion of of cruelty, and I'm a I'm a loudly outspoken person against um, revenge by the state, which is a less fancy word for the death penalty because I just see it as revenge. I I, I want to sneak in one last thing, um, which is around demolitions, which I thought was pretty interesting because you you cite this this huge demolition project that's going to that's happening i think happening ongoing in russia and the removal of of all of this property from kind of the cold war time and so the soviet time and 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 all this kind of stuff and it and it reminded me of a story that i read recently in the new york times which was equally disturbing about denmark removing all of these people primarily um, folks from the Middle East and, and African places that have come to Denmark and settled, and they're rem- and they're getting rid of whole blocks of apartment buildings, right? And and sort of so-called reintegrating these people into Danish life, right? Because they don't want them to set up a non-Danish life inside Denmark, right? Um, and this was in the New York Times, like maybe three weeks ago or something. And this article has really stuck with me. No one seemed to really have a plan as to where these people would go or why their communities outside of being like darker, cued people are are such an anathema to Danish life in some way, right? So I, I wanted to go out on this idea of demolition. So, cause we talk so much about the building of things, but the destruction of things also has a particular geography and and border creation and movement to it as well. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that idea of destroying as movement. And then we'll get to the final two segments of this happy episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, first first demolition. Oh uh, yeah. No, but, but I think what is with demolition, the, what is so strange about the urge to, to destroy a house, especially in, in, let's say, neighborhoods which don't work so well, it's easy, or, or it's, people blame the housing. They say, yeah, if we get rid of this, it's just bad housing, and we get, get rid of these houses, then the ne- neighborhood will change. They, they, a connection gets created between the people who live in these houses and the structure itself. So it's not the people, it's the structure. The structure has to be uh, renewed or it needs to be a good structure, and then everything will be fine. While I would say, um, look at the neighborhood itself, look how the people live, how they are, um, how is their, yeah, how are they? Let's not deal with it. It's just an e- it's almost an easy way. Um, or easier way, we don't have to deal with the people, uh, we can handle the structure. And then if we handle the structure, the people will change. Or they will move, I mean, they anyway have to move. So it's avoiding to deal really with what is going on in the society. And that's actually the, the, the cruel thing. Next to the whole issue of uh, sustainability, um, well, I, I'm not so keen of this word because it's such a container word, whatever it is. But I think every structure 
uh, is an accumulation of a lot of effort, of a lot of investment, of a lot of sometimes also memories. Uh, people grew up, people were born there, and every structure has at least deserves a, a, a second opinion of thinking, can we not save this structure? Can we not change it to something else before completely destroying everything? Destroy uh, solid uh, concrete floors and walls? Um, and that's what I find so almost idiotic as an architect, because sometimes the new is just not better. So we get then plastic windows, plastic insulation, while the original structure is sometimes very, uh, from a, a, let's say now, a, a sustainability uh, thinking, it's very solid without any plastics often, as, as very a good building material, very expensive building material sometimes. Um, so sometimes the new is worse than the old. Oh yeah, well, most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I look at sometimes I go across the Brooklyn Bridge in New York, you know, very famous, iconic bridge, and I think to myself, they couldn't build this today if they tried. If yeah. they if they wanted to build <laughs> the Brooklyn Bridge like something made of limestone and concrete and sink it into the ground, and for all of our technology so-called technology couldn't build that shit right no. like there's no way in hell they would have they wouldn't even have someone could probably map it out and you're the architect i took architecture in high school but i'm i'm not you know <laughs> a long time ago right but you know someone could use autocad to map out how they did it but the artisans the people who actually could lay brick, real brick, not this bullshit fake brick, right? That's like just a lattice that's made to look like brick, but it's not brick. They don't know have people who know how to do that, right? Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, what what is what changed dramatically is the the labor cost. The Brooklyn Bridge is built with a lot of cheap labor at that time. So all this detailing and so on, and now we have the inverse situation where labor cost is really high and material is quite rather cheap. So that that's why the all structure and architecture appears completely different. Like fake uh, brick walls are just prefab because brick layers are super expensive on site laying bricks. So we do it in a factory. It looks almost almost the same, but. Saving on labor costs and saving uh, results in complete different structures and in a, would make Brooklyn Bridge so expensive if you if you would calculate all the labor which went into it. And that's what I also meant with these structures, old structures. The labor cost at that time was so high, we could never, ever afford structures which we tear down, that's, which we demolish. So... Just because of that, they are, are, are priceless. Yeah. I mean, people who, I don't have a brownstone in New York, but people who do have brownstones in New York, like you need, like you have to do certain type of work in a brownstone. So you have to be like, you know, have a, a license to do brownstone work. You just can't just be a carpenter, yeah. right? Yeah. And and those people are rare and they are old, right? Like the, the, the folks who do that are like 70 years old and they were like, yeah, I came over in 1910. And I was like, damn, you know, like, I don't, I, I feel like we're losing the people who know how to actually do this yeah, stuff yeah. as someone who doesn't know how to do shit, right? Cause I'm on the record as I can't do anything, right? I'm just happy that I turn on this Mac and it works every day, right? <laughs> that's, as, that's as much as I could do. That's my equivalent of laying brick <laughs> is turning on this computer. So I wanna get to off the dome and I only have two off the dome questions for you. And then we're gonna get to the drop and then we'll be done. Um, we talked about this idea of passports as freedom, open borders, um, you have EU passports, very powerful one. If you can go anywhere, price is not an issue and the passport is not an issue, right? Even though you do have a passport that allows you to go to many places, where would you go? Where would you check out that you've not seen? Uh, Iran, Tehran. You know, <laughs> I would go. That would be my answer too. That's so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, it's, it's, 
it's top of my list, the first. So it's, yeah, in Isfahan, I want to see the the biggest mall on the world. <laughs> no, but also the Pasai in Isfahan, I would like to see. Yeah. yeah. I've only seen pictures of, of Iran because, you know, enemies, right? Yeah, yeah. In, in quotations. <laughs> and it just looks fucking amazing. Like, I can't come up with another word. I'm just like, God damn, this shit looks just yeah crazy to me. Right? No, I, met, a- I met quite some people from Iran, and, and they're so nice, and, and it's so interesting to talk, and it's, I don't know, I'm, I'm very interested in the culture. Yeah, um, there same. And, and it, they have high mountains. Yeah, it's, it's very, I think the country is very, very uh, beautiful. I yeah, imagine yeah. it. Yeah, me, me as well. So my our second off the dome question is a food question, okay? If you, if you have to choose one of two methods to provide nutrition to yourself for the rest of your life, which will it be? One, eating the equivalent of baby food or taking a pill that will provide all your nutrients. So these are the two choices, <laughs> you know, baby food, pill, which are you going to go with? I'm inclined to, I, I love both. So for the choice is difficult because I'm, I always say I could live on bills. I'm not, a, I'm not fond of eating, but I would, choose baby food because I'm very much into um, porridge and, and so if I, I could easily survive on baby food no, pills maybe would get boring but baby food never could eat it every day <laughs> That's awesome. I love the idea <laughs> that is awesome that is awesome so those are our two off the dome questions so I want to just get to the drop and the drop is anything at all that we can share with our listeners, it can be serious, it can be not serious, um, doesn't really matter. Um, my drop is a show called Happy Valley, which is a, a British show. Um, originally, I believe I watched the first two episodes on the uh, first two seasons on Netflix years ago. It's no longer on Netflix because streaming distributions fucking sucks. Um, so now you have to get it on another stupid channel called AMC Plus, at least in the United States. But it's it's one of these kind of middle of England detective shows. I, I love the, well, cop shows, which is weird because I hate cop shows from a United States perspective. Like I don't fuck with Law & Order or any of those kind of like copaganda shows. But something about someone being in the English Midlands makes me forget about the cop part and I just get pulled into the human drama. Um, so Happy Valley is in its third and final season. It is available on AMC+, Plus, which you can get you can scroll your way around it. I'm currently working my way through a free um, one week subscription because I refuse to pay for another streaming service. But nonetheless, it's a it's a really good show with a compelling female lead um, as the main as the main kind of officer, and it's really about family and all these other things. And so my drop is Happy Valley season three, but you can watch any of the three seasons and enjoy the show. They all kind of link together toward the end. That's my drop, and you're up. Um, my drop, but just a question. It can be also a book. You said it's any media. Oh, it could be anything. I, be anything. I usually have lots of different things. Okay. Just so happen I have a show. Yeah, um, I just read. Uh, my um, drop is then um, a book from uh, the author is Mark Wigley. It's about an artist, Constant Newenhouse. The book is called New Babylon. Um, the book was already published, I think, in the end of nineties. But still, it's one of my favorite books. And whenever somebody asks me to recommend something, this is the book. Uh, Constant Neuenhaus, an artist, Dutch artist, was uh, imagining Homo Ludens, the playing man, the playing human, and designed sculptures, whole landscapes, uh, architectural models for the playing human. Uh, it's kind of a dreamland, which is somehow realistic, which is somehow uh, science fiction, you could say. Mark Wrigley, Wrigley who is a uh, New Zealand uh, architecture theorist, yeah, has written a perfect um, summary and, and explanation of his work in this book. It is awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna check that one out myself. It sounds fascinating. Um, yeah, it's really good. Oh, that's good. Awesome. I mean, 
Theo, I want to I want to thank you so much for for being on the deep dive with me. You know, this conversation was a long time coming. Um, I'm glad we were able to make it get together. Um, despite the the heaviness of the subject and the topics, I, I still find it a, that there's a lot of humanity in this, right? And and the more we kind of confront these structures, confront this cruelty, the better our chances of finding another way, right? So here's to a world without without borders um, and fewer walls. And I want to thank you so much for being on the deep dive with me. Yeah. Likewise, thank you very much for inviting me for the talk. It was very, also for me, it's always insightful to think about uh, the work. And with every talk, I learn my, for myself new things to understand it better. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, my friend. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.